This podcast is brought to you by StoryKingBooks.com. Sign up to receive a free copy of my latest ebook novella, Kane's Confession. If you would like to learn how to support this show, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the Story King. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today's guest is filmmaker Gino Payne. Gino Payne started his film career working in commercial and promotional advertisement. His first projects were in the music video business. Then in 2010, he directed his first feature film, We Was Homeboys, starring Pastor Troy and Sean Lowe. Gino has worked on projects such as HBO's Hard Knocks, Walking Dead, and even Game of Thrones. He's been all over the world and currently directs and produces full-time for his company 360 Films. So let's get right into my interview with Gino Payne. Well, welcome to the Story King podcast, Gino. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you could be on. So to start off, I always ask my guests what their story is. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, I, I, I'm a filmmaker. I uh, started out, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I started out uh, making music videos and uh, commercial ads for local businesses and artists there in Atlanta. Um, I've always, I was always interested in making film. At the same time, I was in film school. After graduation, I was able to to uh, kind of build a network and start uh, creating indie film in Atlanta. Um, very, very indie film, kind of micro budget projects, if uh, zero budget projects, like we like to call them. And uh, was able to start working for a few of the local networks, uh, getting a little bit of actual studio uh, experience. And in this time it was more television studios and news and sports because the film industry wasn't in Atlanta like it is now at this time. And then from there, uh, Got lucky, started working working with the guys with uh, Walking Dead, and uh, mm. from there, uh, worked with some other studio projects, and uh, moved out to Las Vegas. Uh, I took a producer job on a small uh, sports league, and they also had a film uh, department as well. So I took that gig and decided to rebuild everything that I had out 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 here. Um, and uh, so from there, just been kind of dabbling in both sides of the indie world, as well as doing some studio stuff. So on the indie side, my company, 360 Films, uh, we make uh, indie projects anywhere from micro budget to, to your standard independent budget film, two million or less uh, being the top. Uh, and then on the studio side, you know, uh, day player uh, come in, come in and out, you know, from the camera departments on various studio projects out in L.A. That's a lot of stuff right there and uh, one smooth uh, thing you just let out. <laughs> I try. I, I, I think it, there's a lot of up and downs in, in there, but, you know, I assume we get to it. Right, right. Well, let's back up. We'll, we'll, so your first part was a uh, music video. That was like your introduction into basically the film industry, right? Yeah, so that was, that was, the, that was what was paying me, you know. Um, you know, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, we did 
all of the local Atlanta artists, uh, some of the artists that we thought were local were not local. They were national, but we still had fun all the same mm-hmm. uh, making making content for them. And uh, yeah, I mean, from all the local Atlanta camps at the time, it was a pretty vibrant uh, music in, uh, a scene in Atlanta. Um, and I actually went to school with a number of the people um, from Crime Mob to uh, Sierra and mm. uh, and others, you know, uh, these right. are people who we had pre-existing relationship with because, you know, we would hang out, you know, at the, at the football games and stuff. So you were already kind of hanging out with them. So you already had a natural network with a lot of these people already. Yeah, uh, some of them. Like I said, again, you know, there were like two or three artists that actually went to the school that I graduated from. Oh, um, I see. So it was pretty pretty it's pretty easy to just say hey look you know this is what we do and they're like yeah bring your cameras out dude and it's cool so take me to the creative process of directing a music video because it's in essence it is kind of like a short film so where does the initial concept come begin (sighs) it depends on the level of the music video right because you know if you're talking about um rashida and sierra projects um before we even knew um that she was going to be a serious artist she was already like doing serious stuff she was already opening for people and stuff like that Mm. so um by the time we were working with her it was here's the concept this is what it needs to look like and you know we're going to have a you know a manager out there on location to make sure that what we're talking about here is going to be what's being executed Mm-hmm. But then you talk about like your Pastor Troy and your CeeLo and, you know, those cats where it's kind of like, yeah, 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 man, they gave me this amount of money and we just need to spin it, making making a video. Then it's kind of like, you know, they show up and they're like, what are we doing? And you, <laughs> from that point, <laughs> you basically have created a, an outline, a concept. You, uh, some of them are narratives where even though there is not dialogue per se, um, there's sort of a storyline that's happening. Mm-hmm. So you got to create a storyline and, and and show how to tie it in. And some of them are uh, uh, not necessarily tied into what the song is even remotely about. It's just very abstract. Right. Uh, and, then, and then, of course, there's just the hodgepodge music videos where it's like, here's a scene, a performance scene. Here's something cool happening. Here's another performance scene. Here's something crazy happening. Um, and then you cut that all together. So there's several different works of it. The ones that involve more of a pre-production process are those narratives, are, are those narrative uh, music videos that kind of tell a story and take a path. And those, like you said, are very much like short films mm-hmm. where you have to storyboard it, uh, you know, get your props, get your locations, make sure that you are, what you're building is within the skill set of your main talent that's going to be executing this casting and all those kind of things so those sort of have a built-in structure already coming yeah and those as I said, again those are the kind of projects where typically um you wish that you get like the big budget i guess at a certain level you do get the big budget and uh you you say and they say hey we love your work so much tell us what your thought is when you hear this song but when i was making music videos it was if it was a bigger budget they had a plan and if it was a smaller budget it was like what can you do for us for this? Right. You know, type of I gotcha. Right. Okay. So you had some creative freedom with the lower budgets, I would say. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Now from there, you went on to produce your first feature film, right? Yeah. So we went, um, 
uh, in working in that realm, I started working with an artist named Pastor Troy. But we were at uh, some event and he saw that we had a bunch of cameras and he said, hey, you guys uh, make uh, music videos? I'm like, yeah, it's like, okay, uh, have you ever made a movie? And I'm like, no, but yeah, that's, that's what I do. And he was like, okay, cool. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, we ended up sitting down and I said, this guy's never going to call me about this. The next morning he called me right away and wow. you know, we, we jumped right into uh, trying to make this film. I mean, uh, and that was a very untraditional approach. I will I tell you right now, there was absolutely no script. Wow. So yeah, this, was, this film wasn't like something in you for years or anything like that than this specific film. I think he had an outline for a while. Okay. Um, but it didn't go any further than an outline. Um, it was more or less like, you know, I don't, I don't know how much you, you consume um, what they call hood flicks, but it's essentially a number of characters um, that exist in and around any given hood that play their, their own role. Okay. They, they, they somewhat play the, their own selves. Um, I gotcha. Yeah. So, and even though the target audience is the immediate community, um, a lot of the language and a lot of the narrative and the story translates to nat to a different hoods nationally. So, right. um, so yeah, so it, it was, it was, it was kind of scary for me because I was like, at the time I, I've always had a tremendous respect for the art and I was like, wait, so when are we going to get the script? And the guy was like, no, 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 it's just, it's just fine. Like my boy, he gonna play this role and I gonna play this role. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> just, and, just winging uh, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was fun. You know, we learned, I learned a lot. Yeah, I, I learned a lot of stuff I probably should have uh, unlearned sooner uh, when right. I was making that. Um, yeah. So you didn't meet Pastor Troy in your music video making days. You just met him at this event and linked up with him then. Yeah, no, I, I met Pastor Troy back in the music video, in the music video making time. You know, oh. we had built our relationship. We had seen each other from time to time. Then he saw me again at that event and was like, hey, you know, what are you, what are you doing per se? I got you. Yeah. Let's talk about your work with HBO. I know you worked with Hard Knocks, Walking Dead, and my personal favorite, Game of Thrones. So what did you learn being on the sets of these, uh, you know, great shows? So, so specifically with Game of Thrones, you know, I'm, everyone loves Game of Thrones. And so with specifically with Game of Thrones, my, my experience with Game of Thrones was very early on in their process. Mm. Um, so, you know, 2011, 2000, 2010, 2011, um, back when uh, we, it was like Codename, you know, Codename Fire and Ice. Um, and we didn't quite get what we were doing. We, I was actually a part of the pilot shoot and it was pretty fun in that sense. There's like, you know, Hey, we're going to go over, we're in Belfast actually. And there was a number of guys out and we were shooting all composite shots. So these, uh, green screen set extension composite shots where we found a location that that was pretty predetermined by the producers. And we were just getting sort of these plates that they could then go in and lay in the additional green screen set extension from that. And that was what I did with the pilot. Then after that, uh, once we got into, once they actually got into production, I actually came back again in episode four, well, scenes from episode four and scenes from episode seven, uh, four through seven. And in those environments, basically anything in Belfast. So uh, Winterfell and Paint Hall Studio. So Paint Hall Studio is a large hangar that 
uh, if I remember correctly, uh, was where the Titanic was finally the final uh, construction hall for Titanic. Oh, wow. And and so that was where they would finish the ships with finishing hall or paint. They would paint them. So they trans. So when they turned it into a studio, they named it Paint Hall Studio. And so that was the final uh, construction site for Titanic, the actual real Titanic. And uh, but yeah, so there was a studio and uh, we we did like a few episodes there. And I mean, honestly, dude, like to this day, I've worked on things like Avengers, Mulan, oh. a lot of the Disney family stuff. I mean, you know, Disney, Marvel world stuff. And to this day, it's. That, that's a whole different world of production. Uh, what what will happen with uh, Game of Thrones? Because even when I would go to to locations and sets that um, were not inside a paint house studio, they were out on actual location. Uh, it was just so much built around it, and it, it was just so much bigger, you know. And I and my job was very simple. I was in the camera department. I floated between second unit uh, AC. Um, and, uh, there were times when I was, uh, you know, a puller or a second, you know, it, it, it just, it was just massive. Now, how did you get that job? Is it like a unionized thing or did you have like an agent or know somebody at HBO? Well, yeah, no. So when I was with, uh, walking dead first in Atlanta, um, they, it, that actually was very, despite where Walking Dead became when it first started, it was very sort of small. It was a very small group. Um, in the production itself, even though, like I said, again, some of the best, it's my opinion, that some of the best, and I'm biased, some of the best stuff was sort of the first, the earlier seasons. It was very intimate and very small. And so mm -hmm. there was a group of people in Atlanta that was sort of at that forefront of sort of some of the bigger, well known productions moving into Georgia. So when I worked on that, when I worked with that team, um, I just worked my ass off, man. I, you know, was here. I am coming from being a director and the first couple of weeks I was running around as a camera department PA. Um, I was, you know, they, and then they quickly realized, Hey, this guy knows how to build this camera. This guy knows how to run this camera. This guy knows how to operate the steady cam. Whoa. You know? And so quickly, you know, because it was a small unit, when you work on some of the bigger productions, there's no time for you to be touching stuff that you're not here for, you know, um, right. You do kind of what you do. Um, and so, uh, in, in game of Thrones and I'm sorry, in walking dead in that first season, it, it was very, it felt like a, like an indie project, you know, what I would describe now as an indie project at that time to me, it was, it was very big. Right. Um, but now looking at sort of indie projects in the 2 million range, it felt like that in those early days. And so that allowed me to, to kind of move up the ranks really fast um, with a team of guys that luckily were the same guys who had one of the production companies that was shooting Hard Knocks in New York, Hard Knocks Jets. Mm. Um, or, yeah, I think it was Hard Knocks Jets. Um, so we went and shot that. Uh, uh, I went to the editing department for them and was running their virtual cameras from the truck. Um, and then also with their cameras out on the field and that requires sort of guys that are going to be running around, moving around quite a, quite a bit. Um, I mean, it's hard knocks is a different production where you never really finish shooting it because it's, it's, it goes on and on and on and on and things keep happening. You just run out of time and they got to make an edit. So the camera guys are just constantly running, constantly bringing in shots. And the, the biggest value there is trying to bring in, you don't want to bring in a bunch of footage 
hours and hours that they don't end up pulling a lot of cuts from. I mean, when you mm-hmm. come in with a reel and you drop a drive and they're like, wow, we can use this and we can tie this and we can tie that and we can tie that. Then they, then that's when they really say, okay, we, we gotta, we gotta cut, give this guy some more slack, let him move around a little bit more. Um, and so it was the same teams. Uh, and I got a call saying, Hey, uh, got a reference from the guys in Atlanta that said that you were amazing with a narrative and that you understood sort of that process. Um, we loved you with what we did in New York. Uh, we're going to Belfast. And I was like, I don't even know what that is and where that is. Um, and, and that was, that was sort of the, the way it connected. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take the opportunity to let you know about a brand new resource I recently published. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, I've created an ebook called Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro that walks you through all the little details of producing and launching your own show. So for less than $5, you can own this resource by visiting storykingbooks.com or amazon.com. Those links will be in the show notes. And now back to today's episode. So it sounds like networking is like a key source for generating work in the film industry. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I tell people all the time. So the best way to get work in the industry is to be at work. That sounds like bullshit. Forgive me. <laughs> no, um, it's, all right. it's all good. But that's that's the truth. I mean, even a union guy, a guy who works a construction job can tell you that you're not going to hear about the other bridge or the other highway or the other thing unless they're like, hey, hey, what are you doing next month? We got a project, my guy, we need another guy. And the next thing you know, you're out there with those guys, you know? Right. And, uh, and then you're turning down work because you got all this other, you know. But if you're sitting at home sending emails and you're not making relationships, you're not building solid relationships, that's why 2020 um, was such a devastating year for the festival market because – I mean, you can get on all the um, the platforms you want to get on, and they can make it as interactive as, as they want to. AFM did an amazing job with their um, film network and everything. But if you've been to Sundance, you've been to Tribeca, you've been to these festivals, yeah, so you you know, like, the real relationships, the real connections, the real jobs, the, the real uh, uh, things happen when you're standing in those cold lines and you're talking to a guy and you're saying, what do you do? What did you do? In fact, forget that part. Skip that. That's not even that's not even really what happens. It's when you go to those social events and everyone's having a drink and everyone's laughing and then you're hanging out all night and then and then you go back the next morning and you're like, hey, this guy, you know, he was absolutely crazy, man. I I I think I think, you know, he, he was funny. And then you click on his portfolio and you're like, whoa, you made that, that's super cool. It, it it feels a little bit more like a real person and like a guy you like and a guy you want to spend three months on set making a film with. And those relationships, uh, you find an excuse to work with them over other people who are only names on a paper. Um, right. You know, it's just like seeing someone constantly in your social media timeline. They're more of a real thing to you. Well, imagine going to hang out with them for a whole two weeks at a festival where you get to do things that involve things that you both love already. So I think being at work, being on set, being in auditions, being, uh, you know, shooting with your friends and creating concepts and, and those sort of things are the best way to keep the network moving and keep, keep, keep busy. Yeah, it reminds me of that saying, 80% of life is just showing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I mean, you get the greatest Tom Brady. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Patriots fan, but a Tom Brady fan as well. He says the greatest ability is availability. If nice. you can't be there, what, how, what, what does it matter? All the other skill sets. What does it even matter if you show up and you're constantly there? I mean, how many PAs have we have you built a relationship with that are now doing massive other jobs? But mm. it's because they you were like, man, I really appreciate you believing in what I'm doing and being here, maybe even free. Like that, that means a lot to you. You know what I'm saying? And then you kind of like see that they take it serious and you put more and more and more on their plate. Next thing you know, they're going to Belfast, you know? Right. And you made an interesting point. You said basically what you're saying is that there's no replacement for like person to person interaction. Like no matter what you do technologically, it's you're still kind of like a cog in the machine until you meet somebody face to face. And that makes a huge difference. I think that's an important thing for people to realize because, you know, we're so plugged in, but we can at the same time be disconnected and miss out on a lot of opportunities. Yeah, no, I mean, for sure, man, it's, you have to have the connection. The connection has to happen. They have to root for you, especially, especially in those circles and in those environments where it's super competitive right um there's I, I mean i feel so bad for my actors all the time i always sympathize with them coming to auditions and i say listen you could nail everything in this audition and you still in, in, in acting you can still not get the gig because because the other person showed up and um they look more like the person that we had to be the sister or the sister was now the other person that we have to book for this gig is a couple years too old to be your partner or something stupid like that. You know, yeah. it, you know, so it's, it's an industry where it's like, it's so competitive that you cannot ignore the idea that like, we need, I, I would I need you to like me a little bit, you know, um, right. I need you to, I need you to want me to be like you said, like, like I was talking earlier, hanging out with you for four months, making a film. I want to sit on interview panels with you. I want to be connected to your network because everyone's going to say that this guy's great and this guy's a great guy and he's not going to, he's not going to ruin my network, you know? Um, right. Yeah. So when did you first want to work in film? Were you a child? Was it always a dream of yours? I mean, it wasn't even a realistic thing for me for a long, long time. It was just, it just kind of became real, right? Even when I went to film school and all the money that it took to go to film school, it wasn't really this real thing. It was kind of like me saying, look, I want, this is what I like. This is what I love. And I was able to get the scholarship money for it. So let me keep doing what I love, you know, but it was just always not real for me. I mean, man, I'm from Lakewood, Atlanta. Um, you know, I mean, you don't, you don't think of, you know, having a job in the arts unless it's like, you know, music or I guess in, in sports entertainment, you know, something like that, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but you, you don't really think about, you don't, that's not something that you think of as a kid growing up. You really, you really just don't like that just doesn't happen. But um, I kept working and I kept climbing and eventually it got to the point where it was like, this is, this is, this is something that's real, you know, to me. And then of course, when I was making my first film, I was, we were shooting this film all the way through and, it wasn't what I would have created had I, you know, said, okay, I'm going to set out to make a film, but you know, I was paying my bills and I was working as creating and I was actually a director and I was like, okay, wow, let's do it. And, and finally, once we 
you know, because at that stage, I was also editing all of my projects as well. Mm. Um, and so when we finally uh, sat down in what was our editing bay, which was the music uh, recording studio, pretty, you know, we had this whole studio that was dedicated to the whole editing process. And for like two months, we would just show up and just piece by piece go go through it. And eventually one day it was just like, I think I think that's I think that's everything. It was the strangest thing ever. It was like, <laughs> like, well, let's watch it. And then we watch it and we're like, well, I don't think we can do anything else. That's it. Like we, how do we share? Let's start the process, you know? Right. And then, and then it's, and that's so interesting now that I say that out loud, because I was saying to one of my pals, I was like, every, it seems like every accomplishment I get, this is very like, this probably doesn't make me sound like the greatest guy, but like every accomplishment I, I get recently, I, I, I'm not super excited anymore because I feel like I should have accomplished that two years ago. I've long since known I was the one for that or, mm -hmm. or, or I deserved that or I was, you know, that it's not, it's not a big deal anymore, right? And so, but back then, it's just none of it was real to me. None of it was possible. None of it was so. So I told my so I told my friend uh, the other day when I got um, uh, a gift from client the Raiders, um, and they you know for working in their production and in creating their in their film department, mm -hmm. uh, I said I have to look at it from the perspective of ten years ago because in from that lens it becomes more of like I you I never would have imagined ten years ago no wouldn't have imagined that like as I'm a huge NFL fan. But I've never imagined that one of the one of the more storied franchises would say, "Okay, we need to give this guy something in honor of his participation in our first season in Las Vegas." Um, and that would have been, you know. But right. So yeah, you have to remind yourself where you started from to appreciate the the blessings now more. Exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. You got to find that perspective. So let's talk about your uh, company, Three Sixty Films. What's the vision? What are you guys up to? We like to create inspiring content, like content that inspires people to think to, to, and to experience. Uh, that's the cool thing about film is that you get to impart these experiences on people that they wouldn't necessarily have to live through or they wouldn't have to. But with every experience, with every journey in life comes a risk. But when you watch a movie, you don't necessarily take on that inherent risk, right? Um, you you kind of just get to enjoy the experience, take away those lessons and those mm -hmm. relationships without without the risk of, you know, of vicariously. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's what I try to focus on is like, does this story carry any sort of uh sustenance that they'll be able to walk away, or that they'll want to say, "Hey, man, you you should totally watch this film." That this I'm very curious as to how you would digest that. Um. And, and, and have it entertaining, but a little bit more than just entertainment. Got you. So I know you have a master's of film and fine arts from Savannah College of Art and Design. How important do you think formal yep. training is for the arts and particularly film? Is it necessary? What was your experience? I would say it's, it puts you in a better position, right? My grandma used to say, uh, she's from Georgia. She's got a lot of cool sayings. She would say, you know, would you rather be the man who read the book or the man who wrote the book? Um, <laughs> I love so, that. <laughs> you know, 
you know, uh, she said, she's always said there's a good chance the guy who wrote the book left something out. And so you want to be out there getting experience. It is my opinion as a person who has to get hired and a person who does a lot of hiring that there is no skill set that trumps the experience. When you're looking at someone and what the decisions they make in any situation, you're looking at their knowledge, their training, and their experience, in their experience, the knowledge they have about said skill set, the training that they have, because the knowledge may be very different from training. You can know and understand things um, without having any formal training on the details and the nuances of it. So the knowledge you have about a said thing, the training you have with that said thing, and the experience you have, there is absolutely nothing to me that trumps the experience. Because when things break, when things don't go according to plan, I, I, don't, I don't need a genius to try to figure out the best thing to do. I know I want a guy who's actually seen it already. Because then he's going to save me 15 minutes of brainstorming. He's going to be like, he's going to look like the smartest guy in the room, but it's only because he's seen it before. And he'll let us think that he's like a genius, but all along we know you saw this before. And so now you know how to fix it super fast. And that's what I say. I'm like, it's not, it's not that I'm just smart. I've been a part of like a lot of rinky dink productions. I know what <laughs> happens when, when you lose like every HDMI cable. Um, you know, um, so, so with that said, Nothing's going to trump experience. Nothing's going to be more powerful than that. However, there are there are so many small nuances in just the language, the jargon, the 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 every button inside of a camera, every process that we that we use in film that you can say at nauseum, slate. Mark, and there's so many things that we do and say on set at nauseum, but if you don't understand why that's being done and what the process is and how that came to be, then you can mess that up severely simply because you did not understand sort of where it came from and how it came to be and how it affects the job two steps down from you and two steps above you. And so I think that's what you get from, from film school is this sort of almost useless information if 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 everything was fine uh then school was useless because the cameras that you practice with in school you probably won't touch them for like 10 years after you graduate and then by the time they'll be obsolete so you won't touch them um and the processes that you use are like hollywood studio processes so you can just forget that too like you're not gonna be storyboarding your first film like no one can afford a storyboard audience artist uh you know like it, there's, there's so many um there's so many processes that you know you but to understand when something's not working and when something's not happening the way it should happen to understand okay so we didn't have a storyboard artist so that's probably where we're getting confused here on these two shots and how this didn't pan together. You know, to understand those those nuances is what you get in school, the history and the respect of it. I got you. Now, lastly, and you probably answered this along the way a little bit, but what would you say to the next generation of filmmakers coming up behind you, those who don't have the experience you're saying is the coveted thing? What, what does it take to make in the industry and tell the best stories you can through film. What would you say to that, the next generation? The best way to get out there and make stories? Make stories and get into the film industry. And these are people that don't have experience. They may have school knowledge, but they don't have the experience that you're talking about, you know, the hands-on experience. What's the best way to get in there? Yeah, okay, so the, 
let me think about it as I want to, because I hate when people ans- answer these questions without actually trying to help. <laughs> it's like, let me say something cool. It's like, no, I'm trying to get to work here, dude. Could you give me something? Um, so <laughs> I go to a lot of like meetings and festivals and stuff. And there's sometimes people just throw out the cool answer. And I'm right. like, bro, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> the best way to make sure that you're able to get in, get in. Okay, so unfortunately, the first part of this is going to sound like you've heard a million times, but then I'm going to break it down further for you. So uh, Steven Spielberg and, Pat, uh, and Scorsese, they'll all say, just just create, just create, just go make a film. Just go go make it, you know, do it. Well, and you're like, well, I need a camera. Oh, I, I, need, I need actors and I work for free. You know, I'll do this. So the key is connect with the people who are trying to create something. I would say one of my earliest advantages in the industry was my uh, cockiness um, because I was unafraid to like reach out to other people who were at my level or above me and say, hey, look, uh, here's the idea of what I'm trying to do. Uh, do you think maybe we can work together on it? Because in my, in my brain, it didn't occur that they wouldn't want to work with me. I was <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm a pretty cool dude, you know, like, yeah, let's work together, you know? And I always found that they were like, the more flattered that I was like thinking that they were a person that I should ask. And number two, seeing me as an asset at the end of the day, if I have no other skill set, I'm a warm body that can hold something on set. And so finding a way to actually go and make something, we have all the tools. So if you can just get on set and start creating, because what I have found is that the filmmaker faced the same challenge that the actor and the talent face, where the actor is trying to figure out, how do I get an agent so I can get the big gig? I can't get the big gig until I get an agent. Man, what's going on here? Like, I need, you know, and we're, we're doing the same thing. We're like, okay, well, how do I get the funding? Well, I can't get the funding until they see me make something awesome, but it's hard to make something awesome until I get funding. So it's like, what's going on? Just start creating. I talked to a chick at one of these uh, markets, a a film financing consultant who advised me and like blew my mind. She said, she says, if you want to make a film, she says, tell me the budget of the first film you ever made. And I was like, oh, the the budget of the first thing, the first film that I ever made. I mean, it was, it was microscopic. Like, dude, it was like, like $2,000. She was like, okay, now, what was the budget of the second film you ever made? And I was like, oh, it was like $12,000. And, and then she said, okay, after that, 35. Then after that, it was like 50. Then after that, it was like 150. And then, like I said, again, lately, our projects are anywhere between 50 and uh, a million, a uh, million dollars sometimes. And she said, now, each, each one of those steps, where did the money come from the next time? Did, did it not come from someone who saw a previous project? who was a part of a previous project or working on a previous project. And the answer across the board was every single time those people sat in those rooms and watched our premiere, we invited them to some party. They worked with us on set. They had a friend that was inside of one of the films. Every single time, no one's going to, you can spend 10 years raising money for your film. And in 10 years, you would have finally got the letters of commitment, got the uh, investment money. You have gotten the, the writer and the director and the producer on board, and you would have barricaded yourself out of this project because you don't have the experience to be in that creative position. And you will get your film made probably in about 10 years after you go back and forth a million times to get it, get it done. 
or you can spend 10 years chipping your way up, sharpening your skill set, building your network, making the money so that when you get to that position where you finally can have that $2 million budget or that $10 million budget so that you can make your movie about an underwater war or a community clashing against another underwater community and that it can only be made on $20 million, that you actually have the skill, the resource, and the money and the clout to stay inside of that project. So there's sort of two different business models, the business model of the indie slash micro budget that chips its way up. And then there's the business model of basically just jumping in as a Hollywood uh, producer and trying to pull together these pieces and it can get done and it can take years. Game of Thrones being case in point, 10 mil, I mean, 10 years it took to get mm. that from the point where they actually got the license to the books, to the point where they made it. And these guys had experience. These guys were in X-Files and all kinds of things that they were in before. Uh, for, far more for the person that doesn't have the relationship, the network, and the skill set, and frankly, the clout to, for someone to give you that kind of money. Uh, I would say chip up, keep chipping up, and make the kind of films that sell. The kind of films you should be making as an independent film, uh, I'm not saying don't make action. I'm not saying don't make these other things, but I'm saying if you want to make films that sell and you know, allow you to get other investors, uh, you should be working firstly on family films. Hmm. Um, Those are the number one sellers of independent slash micro budget projects. Um, Then thriller and horror, we all know those are big sellers. Faith-based films, there's a demand for it and there's not a lot of filmmakers out there making faith-based films. And of course, documentaries are very cheap and easy to make. In that order, those five Hmm. are the ones that, again, if you make them Without Mark Wahlberg and anybody, you don't need a big star. You can just make it with, you know, kids, family films. Kids do not care who's on the screen. On the screen, family films is simply a definition of something you watch with your kids, and kids do not care um, as long as the story is good. So, make it. Go make it. Go make it. Build relationships and keep scaling up for the next project. Right. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Gino, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm going to have your links, you know, in the show notes, but why don't you tell the listeners, you know, where they can follow you, reach out to you on social media and whatnot. Yeah, I'd say the best place to start to tell if you can stand me or not is go to uh, Instagram. Uh, So it's sir underscore Gino, S-I-R underscore Gino, like a knight of the realm. And then from there, like I say, easy, easy access to my website. Uh, Facebook and stuff like that. Everything's there, but you know, just go ahead and you know, stroll up that page and see if you can, you know, deal with me and my extraness. And from there, uh, you can go and watch the full film. <laughs> awesome, cool. Well, thank you so much, Gino. I've had a blast. Thank you so much for having me. So that was my interview with Gino Payne. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. All his links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to sign up on storykingbooks.com to get your free copy of Kane's Confession. Remember, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, you can visit my website or amazon.com and for less than $5, purchase my latest ebook resource, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the story king. 
All those links will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of subscribing to it and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, or the medium of your choice. And share it with your friends and family on social media. I would greatly appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Story King podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. Please join us next time. Until then.